0: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, September 16th. It's been just over a week now since Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, died at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. The monarch's death kicked off the operation called London Bridge. And for the past week or so, here in the UK, the country and the world, has been preparing for her state funeral, which will take place on Monday, September 19th. To mark a life well lived, I reached out to our friend Elizabeth Holmes to talk a little bit about the Queen and her contribution to style and the way women leaders around the world have used what they wear to send messages about what they believe in. Here's Elizabeth Holmes on the BOF podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Nice to have you back on the BOF podcast. It has been a really momentous week here in the UK. And as an avid follower, an expert follower, one might say, of the royal family, I'm sure you have your own reactions to this. So before we dive in, how have you been processing everything that's been going on over the past few days since Queen Elizabeth II died at Balmoral?
1: Yeah, you know, it's only now just sort of setting in, I think, because although it was very much expected, she was 96 years old, we knew she was dealing with health issues. I think it was still rather sudden. We saw her on Tuesday greet her 15th prime minister. She looked lovely in that sitting room at Balmora Castle in her gray cardigan and her pleated skirt. And I saw that picture and I thought, oh, no, it's lovely to see her. She's looking so well. And then two days later, news broke that she had passed away. And um, yeah, it was just, it took me a minute to sort of wrap my head around it because she has been such a present figure for so long.
0: And now that you've started to get your head around it? What are your personal feelings about her passing?
1: I was thinking, what was it that made her story so compelling to me to follow as not just her fashion but her life as a journalist and I think what I kept coming back to is that she was a queen. It was a woman navigating this very complicated landscape and the competing roles of sometimes of head of state and family matriarch and I think royal watching has been for so long about women, and by a lot of women. And I think the conversation changes a little bit now that there is a king on the throne.
0: Well, here in the UK, as you can imagine, it's not just kind of dedicated royal watchers like you, and you know people who actively follow the royal family, or media that regularly covers the royal family, that's been kind of commenting on Her passing, it's really been kind of wall-to-wall, 24-hour coverage. And a lot of reflection on her contributions, some hand-drinking, as you referred to, about what King Charles III might bring to the monarchy. But what's been the reaction in the United States where you're based? It's
1: interesting because I think that a lot of people watched her for a very long time, and they feel a sort of sadness, but it's certainly nothing like I would imagine the grief that you all are experiencing right now in the UK. I was last in London for the Jubilee in June, and I was really struck by the outpouring of affection for the Queen. And there have been a lot of sort of overdue conversations about the complicated institution that is the monarchy and what its future holds, but certainly at the Jubilee, it seemed that people were able to separate that institution from the individual and celebrate the yeah. queen.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, my family are Indian immigrants from Kenya, two countries that are also linked to the British Empire and then what was became known as the Commonwealth. And my forebears left India as laborers in the colonial system under the British empire after colonization. And so when I was looking at coverage in India and in Kenya, where my family hails from, there has been a lot of commentary on like what this means about the institution of the monarchy. I think widely there are like very positive feelings about the queen as an individual, as a person who has represented this kind of steadfastness and stability in continuity you know she's just been always there you know growing up in canada we sang god save the queen just after we sang the canadian national anthem oh canada but now i'm seeing calls out in the world for the return of the koenor diamond and the star of africa these like incredibly valuable gemstones that became part of the crown jewels. And so, yeah, there are some conversations out there saying, well, what does this mean for the institution of the monarchy?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think um, what the queen did as the sort of face of this for so long, and especially in the last couple decades, she portrayed a sort of soft power, right? Hers was a commitment to duty. She was serving her country. Even in her jubilee message, she signed it, your servant. And that sort of approach to monarchy, I think, carried a lot of people through. And now these questions, I think they're very valid ones about the role of it and the future of it. But certainly while well, during the queen's life, the focus on her put forth sort of the most romantic idea of royalty.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about this soft power that you referenced, because I think, I mean, at least for me, as the kind of flood of tributes came through on my Instagram feed, I don't know where everyone pulled out These photos, I mean, maybe you are familiar with them all because of your profession. This is your professional space. But for me, seeing some of the images that came out, it really underscored this idea that the queen pioneered this idea of using what we wear as a form of kind of an expression of deeper messages or subtle messages or what one of our editors, Diana Pearl, called sartorial diplomacy in the tribute that she wrote on the business of fashion. I mean, what can you tell us and tell our listeners about how the queen came to use sartorial diplomacy in what she wore?
1: I think the queen was, trained from a very young age to understand the power of her visual presence, right? Even as a princess, she was sort of paraded in front of the cameras and they were striking a very specific note. Again, you know, as a young girl, when she was 18 years old, she became the first female member of the royal family to serve full-time in the military. And so she suited up during the war efforts and there are pictures of her crouched down changing attire. And those are sort of the most valuable sort of visual currency to show that she was devoting her life to duty. And then after the war, she was quickly pivoted back to this idea of a romantic princess to give people in Britain and beyond, uh, you know, something to hope for. And from there, you know, she took to the throne at the age of 25. She was a very young woman sort of taking her place, I think, on a global stage that was dominated by men. And she was just very aware of what her clothes did for her the brand of the monarchy, you know, they were there to win hearts and minds. And so those early days, I love seeing all the early pictures of the queen resurface on social media because it's just the most glamorous, you know, we'll never see something like that again. Certainly not in my lifetime, but then I think she's not somebody who people thought was like really into fashion, but I think she understood the power of clothes and she dressed very thoughtfully for a very long time. And so she used things like the color of her outfit, especially when she was traveling overseas to perhaps match the host country's flag, right? It's a gracious gesture that you're giving and you don't have to say a word, right? You're close to, you talking for you.
0: Yeah. One of the examples that kind of struck a note with me was that on visits that she made to Canada, she wore a maple leaf brooch mm-hmm. and that signified some kind of nod to like a really important symbol within Canada. But there were also, I think, bigger shifts that she made like you mentioned the glamour before some of the early pictures you see her in those crowns and tiaras and like the really gilded stuff she kind of moved away from that and saved that kind of dressing more for the formal occasions and became would you say a bit more accessible or relatable in the way she dressed While still regal?
1: Yes, I think that was really important. And I think those early days where you saw a lot of those glamorous shots, when you're dripping with jewels, that wealth is sort of a conveyor of power. She needed, as a young queen, to assert herself in that manner. And because it was sparkling tiaras, it didn't feel like this aggressive power grab. It was just this beautiful queen who was owning her throne. And then certainly the monarchy changed dramatically with the entrance of Princess Diana in the 1980s. And style wise, the queen had a real competitor there and all the attention went to Diana. And I think during that time when the monarchy came sort of down among the people, there was a new expectation that it be accessible and relatable and that the queen, you know, in particular, she showed us a real range, right? You can picture her in the country, right? With her headscarf on and you can picture her, you know, at the state opening of parliament with the crown, you know, that's a tremendous sort of swing of the style pendulum. but It was very important to see all aspects of royal life, both being worthy of the glamour of royalty, but then also sensible stewards of taxpayer dollars.
0: I think she once said something like, I have to be seen, you know, so she would dress, for example, in those like monochromatic colors, like break down her style for us in the same way you do amazingly on so many thoughts regularly (laughs) with some of the other main figures in the royal family.
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of credit needs to go to Angela Kelly, who was the Queen's senior dresser and her very close confidant, because in the last several decades, the queen had developed sort of her own style uniform, but Angela Kelly sort of refined it and then like cranked it up. She made it even bolder. And if you think about the queen, you close your eyes and you picture her wardrobe, you sort of picture the shapes of it, right? The shape of her hat was always sort of the same. It was big enough to help her sort of stand out because she was a rather petite person, but never so big as to obscure her face. Her coat was always sort of at fell mid-shin, you know, or the, the dress peeking out underneath was often floral. She had three strands of pearls, a brooch, her gloves, her bag, her sensible shoes. It was a real formula, but it wasn't a uniform in the sense that she wasn't wearing the same thing over and over, right? She had fun within that formula. And so she played around with colors and textures and the embellishments on her hat. And it was always sort of a delight to see the queen. It was never surprising to see what she was wearing, but it was just a delight to see the 90th birthday balcony moment when she wore neon green. It was just so fun. You know, who, who wears neon head to toe that way anymore? You know, it was very singular to the queen.
0: How do you think this approach of using clothes to kind of send messages influenced other women in high profile roles?
1: I think the queen sort of made it permissible to really stand out. I think oftentimes the tendency is for anybody to sort of blend in with a sea of dark suits, right? It's easier to just sort of conform. And the queen, because she was so bold right up until the end, I think gave permission to women and other political figures to stand out, to choose something. I see, you know, Nancy Pelosi here in the U.S. And, you know, when she's dressing in the Ukrainian colors, flag colors, it's like, oh yeah, that's very queen-like in
0: that approach, Mm -hmm. So are there certain moments that you would call out from her incredibly long reign of 70 years that were really kind of the most iconic moments that you remember from everything that that people have been sharing over the past few days since her passing?
1: Yeah, the images, it's funny, the images seem to sort of bookend her reign that media companies are choosing in, in their tributes. And so it's either the very young, glamorous queen who's portrayed in these gorgeous portraits Or it's the very familiar queen of her nineties where she's on a balcony or in a crowd and she stands out. I particularly love the middle period. I feel like it gets sort of glossed over her middle age but she was not going quietly there. Even you know when Diana was sort of razzling and dazzling on the scene, there's some fantastic pictures of the queen at the Royal Windsor Horse Show, for example. And there's one where she's wearing this like beautiful tweed, long pink cape. And then in that time period, she also was experimenting more with hats, with interesting hats, because she knew photographers would take pictures of her face and a really interesting shaped hat would sort of liven up that picture. And so the fact that she kept at it, she kept going and there is no moment that anybody can point to That was like a wardrobe misstep in seventy years. Think about that. That's so hard to do. It's so hard to do. And so I think we almost take it for granted, the way that she dressed so consistently for public consumption. I mean, who among us is that flawless? Truly, I mean, she just she did
0: a remarkable job. Yeah. So over the next few days, we will be readying ourselves here in the UK for a state funeral. The last state funeral here was for. Winston Churchill, I believe. So this is something that comes along only occasionally in history, really. What might we expect to see in terms of how the royal family and other attendees dress for that state funeral? I guess recently we had the funeral of Prince Philip which might give us a bit of an indication, but what are you expecting to see at the state funeral?
1: Yeah, you know, I have wondered about that and the ways in which fashion can participate in the conversation or not, right? I think that um, certainly jewelry is a very intimate part of the royal family collection, and I would expect to see some of the queen's most loved pieces, her brooches and earrings, to be maybe shared among the female family members. But then I found myself wondering if Catherine, the new princess of Wales, if she would wear a new black dress or a repeated one. You know, she often repeats a piece from her wardrobe when she wants to sort of downplay her fashion as part of the conversation, which tends to at times steal the show. So I think the royal family will try and put forth a sort of sensible approach to this too. That's such a big part of their brand. And so who wouldn't expect everybody to show really turned out? I think it will be a somber and appropriate tribute, especially to what the queen did with her clothes.
0: I guess we saw the first sign of that the other day when the so-called Fab Four made that surprise appearance. I believe it was in Windsor. Yes. Um, and the
1: dresses that, you know, Kate and Megan were wearing, nobody could identify them, but they were so true to their signature styles. The black dress that Catherine was wearing looked very much like a Jenny Packham dress I'd seen her in before. Megan, same thing. She went to her signature boatneck look. I think, again, The royal family chooses very carefully when to make fashion part of the conversation and when to try and remove it from the conversation. And
0: basically you're saying what we can probably expect is a more subdued, blend-in element here.
1: You know, if you think about Prince Philip's funeral, the queen showed up in her usual shapes. It was the same hat, the same kind of coat. And I think there can be special touches. Certainly Kate at Philip's funeral had sort of a more vintage vibe to her look, a little bit more throwback. Um, And I think that if I had to sort of read the tea leaves, you would go sort of more in the like throwback historical looks versus leading towards more modern. But I think everybody will be very cognizant to make sure to keep all of the attention on the queen. Certainly going forward in the immediate future, there will be a coronation to look forward to. And nobody, or I certainly have not lived through a coronation before. So I think there will be a lot. The royal family relies on those big moments, weddings, babies, now a coronation, those moments of you know, like a swell of pride to sort of carry them through. How are you feeling about all of this? What's it like from your perspective?
0: Well, like I said, you know, we used to sing God Save the Queen in all of our school assemblies. You know, the Queen was on all of our coins and on a lot of our notes in Canada growing up. And so for me, she's been a constant. She's been a really stable thing. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been watching some of the commentary and Reading some of the things that people have been saying and really listening to some of the people in the street as the media approaches them is that she's also been one of the most visible female leaders, maybe the most visible female leader we've ever known, at least while I've been alive. And I've been thinking about that as it relates to the fact that the UK has actually just appointed its third female prime minister. This is a really unique situation here in the UK that we've had these like really visible female leaders. And I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about that and how that's shaped the way people see the role of women in society. Even though it's a hereditary role, the queen as a powerful female figure who behind the scenes perhaps has used that power to shift things or advise leaders as, as she did on a weekly basis, she would meet with the prime minister of the time. And all of those conversations are off the record. We don't know what she said, but a lot of the listening and reading that I've been doing, she's not just advised prime minister, she's advised world leaders on important topics. And she's really taken to heart some of the feedback she had over the years about being more accessible. And so I just think about her leadership and the role she's played in shaping the culture around us.
1: I think that when you talk about her visibility, the fact that she was the first queen of the modern media age. If you think about royalty in the past, you'd see them, you know, in a painted portrait every now and then. But think of just how photography has exploded since the queen took to the throne and how the cable news landscape exploded and you 24-7 coverage and glossy magazines and things like that. And just the fact that we could see her as often as we did compared to how often we heard from her. You know, she gave scripted speeches and every now and then you get like the delightful off the cuff kind of quip kind of thing. But for the most part, you didn't hear her a lot. You saw her and that just sort of steady visual presence. I don't think we'll ever have anything like that. You know, it's sort of incomparable at this point. And like, and to the way that she was, is so familiar, but also so mysterious, so unknown. Like we know so much about Charles at this point, and we know so much about every other public figure. It's just that she was just sort of singular in her place in our sort of public consciousness.
0: Absolutely. I, I went over to Green Park the other day where people have been laying these floral tributes, and it's kind of mind-blowing to see just the thoughtfulness and the effort that people have gone to, to write these notes. Mm -hmm. And you really see that she's for a lot of people here in the UK, she's really part of the, almost like part of a family for people, you know? And so I think the next few days are going to continue to be very emotional here. There's a very thoughtful, somber mood, but I also felt a certain sense of celebration around Mm -hmm. a life well-lived 96 years working until almost the very last moments of her life. Two days before, as you said, she was bidding farewell to her 14th prime minister, Boris Johnson, and welcoming her 15th prime minister, Liz Truss. And the fact that she passed away peacefully with her family around her only two days later is in, in her favorite place, Belmore Castle. It's, People um, would
1: ask me all the time if, when she was live, if I thought she would ever abdicate. And I always said, no, this was her role for life, truly. I think when you hear that clip from her 21st birthday speech in South Africa, where she sort of dedicated herself that's being played over and over, it's on every podcast, every newscast, and you listen to that and you just hear from such a young age, her conviction and her commitment. And we saw that. And what a perfect ending to usher in your 15th prime minister. I thought it was quite poetic, actually.
0: It really was. And so... This is our little tribute at BOF to a life well-lived, to a prominent, consistent source of leadership from a woman in a position that came with complications, certainly, but which I think she used with a certain sense of dignity and grace and consistency. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few days. But Elizabeth, Thank you, as always, for making yourself available to our community so we can benefit from your expertise.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Such a special conversation to have with you.
0: Thank you. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team.